Welcome to the Master Series, your guide to intelligent production, brought to you by Entertainment Partners. I'm your host, Natalie Nelson. In the Master Series, we focus on important issues impacting the entertainment industry and its workers through in-depth discussions with legal, tax, payroll, technology, and production experts. Today, we commemorate Pride Month as we present Pride Plus, celebrating Pride Month and LGBTQ film and television. And we are joined by a group of seven groundbreaking producers and activists to discuss the past, present, and future of LGBTQ plus content, those who create it and its distribution. Now let's meet our panel. Today, we are joined by Bruce Cohen, an Academy Award-winning Emmy and Tony-nominated producer of film, television, theater, and live events. His notable credits include the Best Picture-winning films American Beauty, Milk, and Silver Linings Playbook, and currently he is in pre-production on Rustin for Netflix. We're also joined by Damien S. Navarro. Damien began his career as a startup entrepreneur building the LA-based consulting firms Earthbound Media Group and The Institute. He is former president of VIMBY and he is current executive director of Outfest. We are also joined by Jared Milrad, an award-winning social impact filmmaker, entrepreneur, and lifelong advocate for social change who has spent over two decades leading transformative initiatives. Jared is founder and president of the Social Impact Film Festival, A Show for Change, and the nonprofit Movie Karma, working with over 500 filmmakers in over 50 countries. Also with us today is Jim Fall, a director and producer known for the acclaimed independent feature Trick. His other notable credits include the Lizzie McGuire movie, the cult comedy favorite Gross Point, Wedding Wars, and most recently he has written and will be directing the forthcoming Trick 2. Also with us today is Laura Ivey. Laura is a producer and executive of film, television, and theater with over 22 years of experience in production, and she is the former co-president of the board of Outfest in Los Angeles. Her recent productions include the Broadway musical Mrs. Doubtfire, opening in December, the feature Walking Out, and Meg Ryan's directorial debut, Ithaca. Also with us today is Samantha Spreacher, an independent producer working in film, television, and branded content. Her notable credits include the films Here Today, Parental Guidance, America's Sweethearts, and the FX series The Comedians. Rounding out today's panel is Zachary Drucker, an independent artist, filmmaker, and producer known for the Emmy-nominated docuseries This Is Me, as well as the Golden Globe and Emmy award-winning series Transparent. Her directorial debut for television, Lady in the Dale, premiered on HBO in early 2021. And finally, today's moderator is Joseph Kianese, Senior Vice President and Production Incentives Practice Leader here at Entertainment Partners. Joe provides production, legislative consulting, financial, tax, and administrative services for domestic and international production incentives. He has over 35 years of accounting, government affairs, production incentives, and tax experience. And he has formerly held positions at Sony Pictures Entertainment, The Walt Disney Company, ABC Television Network, Paramount Pictures, and Ernst & Young. And now, this is the Master Series. Thank you, Natalie. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Entertainment Partners Pride Plus Panel celebrating Pride Month and LGBTQ plus film and TV as we stream to you live or not. If you're viewing this, this panel is going to be archived on EP's website, ep.com. So uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, I just want to thank my panelists again, 
since everyone has been properly introduced, let's just dive right in to sort of maybe set the stage a little bit and talk about maybe the origination of Pride Month, which really uh, started as a, a commemoration of the Stonewall riots back in 1969. I was lucky enough to be in New York, uh, God, I was going to say last year, but it actually wasn't. We all lost a year, didn't we? In 2019, where we uh, uh, honored and remembered Stonewall. Uh, in 2020, they should have been a 50th anniversary of the first Pride Parade. Unfortunately, due to COVID, that did not happen. So um, anyway, we're here to continue to celebrate Pride, which at the end of the day, is, is, it's all about inc inclusion and representation. It's really important to highlight how film and TV can create images and provide role models where everyone feels like they belong and are valued for their true selves. It begins by celebrating those differences and sharing experiences and having the courage to lead. And speaking of leading, I think we had a really monumental week uh, for Pride with Carl Nisbet coming out as the first uh, active NFL player to come out. So hopefully his personal journey will make it easier for younger uh, athletes considering a career in professional sports, uh, that there's a place for them and their true selves. So a big, and also a shout out to Carl for his $100,000 contribution to the Trevor Project. So just want to sort of highlight all that. But really what I wanted to start today is to talk about, you know, actually sort of how people might remember the beginnings of LGTB2, sorry, too many letters. Anyway, gay content. Um, I know over the weekend we were going back and forth through emails sort of acknowledging the Rotten Tomatoes top 200 films. And I want to congratulate Bruce for Milk and, and Jim for, for Trick. Uh, but I'm going to be relying on all my cinephiles here to talk a bit more about uh, some films that really sort of in their minds sort of made a difference. Um, and then we'll start talking about what's going on today in film, talk a bit more about your careers and where things are going. You know, the topic of film, gay film can really be a topic amongst itself. I mean, there's a great documentary out there that we, I think we all know about or seeing the celluloid closet, which really kind of capsulates up to, I can't remember where that film ended, but uh, really where uh, gay content sort of was and where it ended up at that point. And I just needed to highlight one sort of quote from that documentary that still haunts me today. And really what it said, it was homosexuality depicted on screen was something to laugh at, something to pity or something to fear. Uh, and, and again, leaving a legacy, teaching straight people what to think about gay people and gay people what to think about themselves. So what's interesting is that finally over the years, we now have new voices that have emerged that, op that are open, unapologetic and are telling stories about, you know, their lives, their true lives our, and our true selves. And there's also the Hulu documentary out now, uh, Pride, which I haven't seen yet, but I do want to mention that our fabulous Zachary Drucker is featured in that documentary. So again, uh, there's a lot out there in terms of history. That's a six part documentary series chronicling the struggle of LGBTQ civil rights uh, in America from the 50s to today. But I want to sort of, again, jump back to, and maybe I'll start with Jim for some reason. He's my Alice in my, my Brady Bunch box and ask him maybe to talk about his perspective of, of, of history of, of LGBTQ plus films up to a certain point. So I want to sort of break it up into eras, but maybe thinking about the 60s, 70s and 80s and, um, and how things started changing in the 90s. You know, your film came out in the 90s and where things continue to progress. Um, well, you know, my point of view, I'm a child of the 70s, was in high school in the late 70s and early 80s. So um, I just remember very early, well, at least in high school, thinking if, you know, if I ever get to make a movie, I, I'm going to make only gay movies. 
I didn't quite work out, but, but, uh, you know, I've made mostly gay movies, but, you know, in late 1978, 79, 80, there weren't, there still weren't many positive, if any positive representations of gay people of any kind on television or um, film. And it wasn't until um, the movie Making Love came out in what, 81, that it kind of blew my mind because in some ways it still hasn't been surpassed because it was a studio movie, a love story centering on gay people um, in a lot of ways, it's still a groundbreaking movie. And that really, really um, solidified my, my. it kind of pushed all my buttons because I, I wanted to make a romantic film. I wanted to make something that would make me laugh and cry. And um, that movie wasn't a comedy. But my, my point is, it was, it was an exciting time to grow up as a filmmaker because we, we were entering this phase of like, where more and more, uh, you know, gay queer voices just had to be heard. And by the time... I finally got around to making my first feature in 98, Trick. Um, we were still at a place where a glass ceiling hadn't been broken and indie movie, a gay indie movie hadn't broken through in a huge way yet. But um, um, I mean, influences the movie Outrageous in 1977, uh, a, a sweet little movie from Canada about a drag queen who comes to New York to make it big. I mean, that movie touched my heart. And of course, Tales of the City, the first one on, on, on the first version on, on TV. Uh, those were my influences, at least when I was a younger filmmaker. And I want to give everyone else a chance to comment, but I remember, that I think the very first film that I remember was The Boys in the Band. And I have to be honest, that, that version sort of scared me a little bit. It just felt a bit, you know, uh, unhappy, which is interesting because to seeing the newer version, uh, both the stage play and the Ryan Murphy version, it, it just seemed happier, even though the story was the same. It's just something about how those characters were depicted on screen that I felt different about, or maybe I was diff I'm different today than I was when I saw it the first time. But it, again, goes back to the comment, what you see on screen influences how we may feel about ourselves. Uh, Bruce, I wanted to maybe ask you what, what, what maybe what film sort of stands out for you in terms of, uh, you know, in this history of gay cinema. Well, let me just start by saying how excited I am to be a part of this great panel um, to do a shout out to Zachary Drucker, who's phenomenal in the Pride documentary and the whole thing's incredible. So that should be required Pride viewing if you haven't seen it yet is to check that out. Um, I think that the um, film that really stood out to me was Parting Glances in 1986. It was the first role by this unknown actor named Steve Buscemi, um, who is straight. It, of course, was way before there even were openly gay actors available to play openly gay roles. Um, I was um, a, a Director's Guild trainee working my way up in the business, um, was not out at work. No one really was at that point. And that movie just um, made such an impression on me. You know, it was the very opposite, um, Joseph, as you were saying, of roles that we laughed at, pitied or feared. You know, here was this incredibly three-dimensional um, aid story with this brilliant young actor, which gave me, it gave me big cred later in my assistant director career, because in 1991, I was the first AD on Hook, directed by Spielberg, and Dustin Hoffman played Captain Hook and Dustin would stay in character all day long, really more not to be method, but just because he loved being Captain Hook. And one day he announces the greatest actor of his generation is coming to our set today. Mr. Cohen, who is that? And I go, Steve Buscemi. And Dustin nearly fainted because 
that's who it was. And no one really knew who Steve Buscemi was. And I think Dustin and I might be the only two people who thought that he was the greatest actor of his generation at the time. And that was because of parting glances. That's great. I love that story. Zachary, what about you? Thank you all so much. Um, thrilled to be here in such fabulous company for Pride. I will also give a shameless plug for Disclosure on Netflix, which kind of picks up where the celluloid closet left off and kind of examining the cinematic history of, you know, gender subversion of trans people, um, of cross gender people. It's oftentimes not actually about trans life, <laughs> the renderings of, you know, people who traverse gender through television and film history. I love new queer cinema. I loved Trick. I rented it on VHS as a young person. Um, growing up in Syracuse, New York, a Rust Belt town, my only access to culture was at the video store and at the library. And I would say that um, John Waters, the new queer cinema, uh, you know, Watermelon Woman, go all you know, name it, you name the film, Poison, um, any Greg Araki film, The Living End, um, the you know, teenage uh, apocalypse trilogy. Um, it just really sparked my imagination of what was possible. And I think especially um, creating things that were slim and possible with the resources that you had access to and with the people in your community. Um, so I just give a tremendous amount of gratitude and reverence for the, the many kind of outsider representations of queerness. I think it um, was monumental in shaping who I am as a person and as an artist and filmmaker. Zachary, I love your comment about access. We're going to be talking more about that, but I, I, same thing for me. I'm a bit older, but yeah, my access was the library and the video store, and now everything has changed so much with streaming services and, you know, access to, you know, content in so many different ways. So I'm excited to be talking more about that a little bit later, but to move on, I wanted to give Samantha a chance to maybe highlight a film that sort of stood out to her. Um, well, for me, um, it was a little less about film um, and happy pride, everyone. I'm so <laughs> psyched to be here and to be here with all of you. Um, uh, for me, it was less about um, films and my uh, my adolescence was completely changed and my identity was so made by MTV, um, which launched and the new romantics um, of like Annie Lennox, Duran Duran, Kaja Gugu, like all of these, you know, British bands. And then it, it fed into into American bands, too, but who were playing with gender. Um, it was very rigid in the eighties. And then like, it just sort of exploded and, you know, boys dressing as girls, girls dressing as boys. And it was all just so queer and so uh, wonderful. And as a, you know, 15, 16 year old, I fully leaned into it. And um, I didn't, I didn't realize that I was so gay at the moment, but it really just sort of spoke to the core of who I am. And then, um, and this will be, I'm sure you're gonna touch on this in a minute, but also, I came to Southern California for college and um, Outfest existed at the time and was just a little teeny tiny film festival. And 
uh, for me, being able to go there and uh, to see films. I mean, I remember seeing Trick at Outfest in 99. It was amazing. Um, and just to be able to, to see myself on screen um, in a way that I couldn't see on television, other than, you know, MTV, which I love, but on television and in mainstream theaters um, made all the difference. So um, that was my, my cultural reference. Uh, I love your reference to Outfest because I moved to Los Angeles in 97 and I wasn't out professionally and not even out to a lot of people personally. And the first place that I gravitated to, I mean, just, I don't even remember how was Outfest and just be struck by the images and seeing, you know, images of me and, or who I wanted to be on the screen. And that was just so important, really important. So that gives me a perfect segue to Damien, uh, since, um, he is our Alfest representative. Uh, but maybe, David, tell me what film stands out to you or TV or any sort of content. Yeah, I definitely was a television nut. So I think one of the most exciting things about what Alfest is doing is, is bridging into other forms of media and really understanding that there's, you know, uh, as we just heard, music and television and film have all collectively kind of worked together. What's really important right now is to understand where creators are coming from, especially younger creators. And, you know, I went through the very traditional film, fest, you know, film, film school process and then was very interested in directing and, and got into producing and content and, you know, kind of came back full circle. But really now, you know, creators IP is coming from any place, whether it's live theater, whether it's television or music. So I really do love to see, you know, how, how Alpha is, is, is continuing to evolve. Um, past simply independent film, which of course has, was such a mainstay in so many of our lives and was the first time that visibility happened, but now really seeing accessibility due to, I mean, entertainment partners itself, due to technologies and production, um, uh, you know, red camera systems, digital systems, like the accessibility to, to really produce something exceptional now, um, you know, the barriers are slowly coming down. However, the funnel is very, still very tight at the top. And so when you look at the things that have made it through into the mainstream, you know, there's very few, especially when that are representing a lot of uh, individuals like myself as a person of color. Um, and so I think it really is important to, to look back at like historically, what are some of those that I really resonated with? I mean, the wedding banquet comes up always because it was the first time I really saw uh, you know, kind of a biracial or, or a person of color with a, a Caucasian uh, man and, and going through a cultural sensitivity, um, you know, adventure in a comedic way. And I remember that just resonated up before that. All I can remember is I Love Lucy was the only thing that looked like my 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 household. So I really started to appreciate, you know, and, and that, you know, people of color weren't all of a sudden you know, always the victims and we're always the, the, the antagonists um, in, in these stories. And I'm just really excited to see how those are progressing. Um, of course, one of my favorite films of all time is Carol, uh, which is, <laughs> which doesn't have either of those things, but I think, you know, fundamentally really shifted our ability to see um, a lesbian relationship in a very different way. And I think that's, what's really exciting about Hollywood today and, and just the entertainment industry is we're finally getting past the cringeworthy moments where we're all sitting there. And, and even some of these, these films that we're talking about, um, you know, always had that moment where like, oh, there it is. You know, that, that well, we knew that was going to end to that couple or that was how that was going to end or start. So I'm excited to see that some of these new stories are coming through. Um, and I and I think really what our tasks now as an industry is also, and this is what I was so excited about with when Disclosure came out, was to look at how history needs to be revised, how we've seen things through a revisionist 
history of especially our queer history um, and how we have to actually go back and correct that. You know, there's some great projects like Polly Murray that's coming out um, and, and others that we're starting to realize the nuance um, of who is behind these stories. Stonewall was a great example um, and, and that particular film and how we're like, no, that isn't how it happened. And we're finally starting to get more and more voices to come forward that we can document in a different way. Great. You, know, you said the, the word cringe and going back to what Jim said earlier, I remember seeing the movie Making Love. Uh, so excited to see it. And, uh, and I saw it in New York City. And so sort of a very, you would think, open minded um, theater going audience. And there there was cringing and there was laughing and there was actually people leaving the audience. And I was surprised by that. And I just happy to say that I don't think anything like that happens today. So we, we've definitely come a long way. So, Laura. What about you? What, what, what stands out for you in our LGBTQ past? I'm a little bit more like Samantha in that, like, I mean, I loved going to films. I saw films a couple times a weekend, you know, growing up. But I, they were in movie theaters, probably more traditional big studio films. And I think the absence of uh, LGBTQ characters was notable. And more so, I think, kind of what Samantha was saying, I didn't really realize I was gay, but I think part of that's because I didn't see any depictions of that and, and, and kind of allowing that to be even a choice in your life. Um, and I think for now, today, the more you see, especially depicted on every day, like just everyday people, then the more you can give that, give yourself that opportunity to, to know that that's a choice in your life. And so, yeah, I mean, so on my canon of sort of LGBTQ movies growing up was, very, very little. And uh, it didn't impact me in the way that I think a lot of people have. And, but I also think, you know, that that's part of the problem. So I look forward and I, I think we are changing that and I'm super excited about that. And it's interesting, again, going back to Cellular Closet, because I just watched it over the weekend again to prep for this. And it's interesting, and I've seen it many times, just to be reminded that, you know, that how present we were in early films. And then at some point, whether it was the you know, late 20s, early 30s, people got scared and then we weren't there. And then we reappeared again, not overtly, but as, you know, comic characters or tragic characters, but not named. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've come a long way, baby. <laughs> the, the Hayes office did a, quite yes, a bit to, yes. take, to take not just queer characters, but um, anything that wasn't kind of straight and white and thought of as, you know, normative they tried they tried very they, they created a very square box um and they erased a lot of people from uh from film and really homogenized stories in a not great way right. so jared we just want to end with you in terms of a project or you know any sort of uh lgbtq plus content that sort of sort of stands out for you in, a, in your in your past Sure. I mean, for me, you know, similar to what others said, I didn't grow up in, you know, 90s, 2000s. Uh, in my case, uh, you know, Will and Grace was obviously, I, I was aware of as like, okay, there's there's two gay characters, but I didn't feel like I connected to them, uh, frankly. Like, I, I think there just weren't many options for those of us of that, of that generation. So for me, it was really Brokeback Mountain, which I think is uh, made fun of and is like maybe, maybe the source of some jokes these days, but I think it's actually an incredible film. Um, for me, I saw it as a closeted gay kid in North Carolina at the time in college. Uh, 
alone, didn't want to tell anyone I went to see it, um, but was just like deeply moved by seeing a modern, you know, modern gay love story essentially on screen. So I think that's why I do the work I do now, which we'll talk about later through my nonprofit movie, Karma is really fostering more inclusion in the industry um, because I, I myself have experienced the power of not seeing representation. And then when you do see it as a young person, how impactful and really transformative that can be. That's a great point, Jared, which takes us really to let's talk about what's happening in, and I'll just say film content today, because at this point, we don't really have to necessarily say LGBTQ plus because we are now, you know, in these movies or in these TV shows. Uh, it's not just necessary about us, we're sort of part of the, the spectrum of everyone. So maybe I'll ask, ask all our producers to talk about, you know, how content overall is changing in the last uh, decade or so. And, I'll, and Bruce, I'll start with you if you don't mind. Not at all. I mean, you know, the change is massive in so many different ways. And I think, you know, we've all seen one of the really exciting positives of the streamers and their emergence has been in the just sheer amount of LGBTQ content from all over the world that's available to people from all over the world. I mean, you know, it's 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 overwhelming in a really beautiful way when you hear our stories of how little content we had and how little role models there were and how much we struggled and how much time there might be in between where we even had access to gay content. And, you know, now for better or worse, 24 seven, um, because we should also be out doing other things and just addicted to our screens, um, being the father of a 10 year old, um, the, uh, you know, the depth and breadth of the content that's available is really beautiful and powerful, you know, and, um, I've just recently, I've been watching love Victor, which, um, you know, I, I, I feel like I can watch it through the eyes of a gay kid who's somewhere on the journey of or he, she, they of finding out who they are and how incredibly transformative. Like I could if I had seen that when I was a kid and got to like watch someone else go through the process, you know, it would have changed everything. That's a great point, because I mean, I, I came out late uh, later in life than uh, some people. And everyone's like, well, why? Why was that? Was there issues with family or religion? And, and I said, no, the answer is no. I just didn't feel there was sort of anything that I felt represented by. So I kind of felt a bit alone. So it goes back to, again, how powerful this medium is in terms of helping people feel that they belong. So thanks for that. That is a great show. Well, Victor, thank you for bringing that up. Um, so, uh, Laura, what about you? Talk about what's happening today with, with uh, overall content, whether it's specific to LGBTQ plus or inclusive of those of those characters. Sure. Sorry, I'm about to lose power on my computer, so uh, I'm switching uh -oh. devices. But I think I think that one of the most amazing things it's it's exactly what bruce was saying which is that i mean the prom just being a fun just yeah, you know fun. a representation of fun it's you know there was a while and, and i'm not faulting them because i think all of the movies that we've had are amazing but we you know a gay movie was thought to be a coming out movie for so long and it was like and there is absolute importance in that but just having movies represent gay characters as everyday people um i think is you know you just happen to be gay but you're still in a romantic comedy and you're still in, you know, whatever kind of storyline I think is the growth that we're seeing. And I think the growth that we still have to do. Um, but I think it's coming and I think it's there. And like Bruce said, I think the streamers just 
the amount of content they have to have and the broader um, group of people that they are serving, you know, I think it's, it's going to serve the diversity of content across, across the board. Agreed. Agreed. What about you, Jim? I can find my unmute button. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm agreeing with all of you. You know, I think I think another. It's interesting. There, there is such a plethora of of amazing content now that you can access everywhere. Um, I, I, I still wish there was the movie or the show, and maybe it's more movies than there is TV because there's so much representation now in television. I've been watching Shrill this last season of Shrill and. I've been I've been just loving the fact that there's just these parallel stories with the with the lesbian couple and I don't know all of it seemed very effortless and wonderful. Um, at the same time, I feel like there still isn't like a feature film that I can think of in recent memory where there's just a gay character, as sort of Laura was saying, that's just gay and it's not about being gay. It's just the lead. I don't know a thriller or a you know a, a crime film and maybe I'm forgetting something and please tell me if I am. I feel like we haven't gotten quite there yet. I think hopefully it's soon, you know, um, but uh, other than that, it's, it, you know, when I think back on my young self it, it, and how little there was to see, I'm hoping the content that's on, on TV and film now is helping this new generation of young up and coming queer folk to see that there's a life out there if they're in a, a situation or a town or a family that isn't supportive, that there's a, you know, that it gets better. You know, once you. you know, it's interesting you mentioned. So I, I recently saw Cruella, and uh, there is a character within Cruella that, again, is supposed to be gay. I hate to say it that way, but it, there was so much criticism that I remember, I remember reading online because either it wasn't obvious enough or it was too obvious. It was like, you know, you, almost like you can't win. No. Uh, but a phenomenal movie. I'm talking more like a, a main character. I mean, I feel like we have, yes. we have so many supportive characters that where's the main character that just is gay and it's not a big deal and not the point. That's, right. Maybe yeah. I'm forgetting, but yeah. No, no, no. Can't remember it all, Jim. I know you, you're you a cinephile, but you can't remember it all, especially it's still early in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> Damien, what about you? So, I mean, obviously you're sort of in the midst of it with the festival in terms of, so you're seeing all types of content, you know, so evolving and changing, but, you know, what are you seeing or feeling with regards to the current representation on film or television or any sort of media? Yeah, it was really funny. I just put a, a link up for um, for the the group and the attendees, which was our Al Brunson, which we kind of went through and really discovered, at least from a television perspective, a lot of those stories. Um, and what was so exciting to see with this particular program was how many of the, like exactly what we're talking about right now, how many of these characters um, are our are, are main characters. So I think Star Trek Discovery is a great example, you know, where it's like, they're just a couple and, you know, they're, and it's a, it's, it's an incredible, both in front of the camera, behind the camera crew um, that allows that to happen. Cause we really need, you know, we need to really get outside of our bubble in order to paint these characters the way that we see them in real life. Um, and, and there was a number of those shows, the wilds motherland, um, which I hadn't even heard of <laughs> uh, that was really, really exciting to see. Oh, wow. So we are here. We're at this moment. And a lot of them it is because they are creating writing rooms um, and we'll talk a little bit about this, you know, Hollywood, it, it isn't just a matter of like glad saying these many characters are being represented. It is a fundamental change where we didn't see ourselves represented on the business side of things, whether it was business affairs or accounting or, or the writing rooms or wherever, where we're starting to finally see a switch 
happen um, that is affecting, and I think television and streaming, simply because of the sheer volume of it and the ability to experiment more um, rather than, you know, independent film where so much goes into one project and so few of these projects ultimately get made. Um, and we see that every year with how many short films that are ready for their first feature that just never make it through that, that sifter. So I'm excited to see more and more in television, but I, I gave this list because if anybody wants to know, like, where are we seeing positive, affirmative, you know, amazing character development and many cases where the character is not, you know, the main character may be queer, but isn't necessarily going through anything around that particular subject is really exciting to see. Well, we'll be sure to post that and make sure the larger audience can see that. So thank you for that. I think I put it for all attendees, but we'll... Yeah. Oh, great. Well, even better. <laughs> so Samantha, um, as somebody who's producing or pitching content, somebody who's in the room, um, what are your thoughts about how you know LGBTQ content is sort of being either produced or perceived or sort of just uh, dealt with today? I think it's a wonderful moment in the biz because there really is sort of, you know, people want... Uh, want LGBTQ content. They want, in general, like overall outside of queerness to make content that's reflective of the world that we all live in. Um, and I think that's really exciting. Although I will say, I think we still kind of, everything still kind of skew straight, white, you know, cisgender, um, but we're definitely on the right path. Um, so I, so I, I feel really positive about that. And I will just say one thing people kind of bag on the like lifetime hallmark, like Christmas movie world, which I happen to love. Um, but I will say that they, um, they have started, you know, putting um, queer characters into their movies. And the, the first kind of round of them were people who just were, and they yeah. were just there and they weren't main characters. And it was a little refreshing, but um, I just sort of did a cycle with, um, with a script that had lesbian leads and it very much followed the conflict light, like Christmas happy formula. And, you know, one of the things I was really proud of it is that it didn't make an issue of their lesbianism. They were just two women who fell in love and it was totally the formula. Um, and I, to me, that moves the story forward because no one in the family is ashamed of them. They're not ashamed of their, you know, of their, of their queerness. Um, and they just are two women who fall in love and it's really just kind of fun. And, you know, it ends with the very chaste, you know, kiss at Christmas at the end of the movie, which is, you know, part of the, part of the formula. And we didn't, um, we didn't end up uh, getting it made this cycle. So maybe next cycle, we'll see. But, you know, I just feel like now there's, there's a lot of those kinds of opportunities as, you know, like so many of, of, of us here, like we've been making, trying to make this kind of content for a long time and things needed to kind of be issue driven. And now there's a moment, I think, where you can make, you know, film and TV and branded content that looks like the world and we, that we live in, we can, we can uh, reflect authentic stories. So to me, that's exciting. Can I add to one of the most exciting things that I saw recently? Because I think it, you know, just sort of educating for tolerance starts, you know, early, we all know, and continues is the Sesame Street uh, gay couple that they just uh, yeah. had on, um, which I think is wonderful and amazing. And, um, you know, I just think that that's, we need it to just be, as we all say, it just, it's not issue driven. It is just there. And they're one of the couples and families that exist in that world. 
you know, I, I wanted to just sort of chime in with that because a lot of us who are on this are our parents and my kids are now uh, adults, but when they were little and they're watching, you know, animated TV shows, there was nothing in that world that reflected our family. Um, and I, it was really disturbing to me because I just would see this sort of, you know, erasure of us or, you know, and I was probably taking it one step too far, even like a little shame of the family, like unit from the outside world. Um, but now like, you know, Chris Nee, who has a huge, you know, animation deal at Netflix is, is creating content that's reflective of our families. Um, and, uh, I think that that's so exciting and that's a huge step forward because I think when, you know, kids can tune in and see, their family reflected back at them. Uh, it just has a great um, normalizing and like it's just a big hug. Um, so anyway, so I think that's a big step forward too. Thanks for that. So Jared, we're going to talk more about your organization a little bit later, but I know the organization's sort of overall mission is inclusion, but maybe just give your thoughts about, you know, uh, current content today and how you know, maybe things that stand out to you specifically in your organization and things you might want to see changed. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot, John. You know, I think I think there's there's a lot of pieces that folks who are not in the industry may not know. I mean, uh, a few of you raised the, you know, there's there's some numbers we know which are not great in terms of representation in front of the screen. They've been improving in some ways and not in others. But you know, Netflix's study, for example, found I think just two percent of their characters were LGBTQ plus in the last couple of years. We know that numbers aren't great for folks of color who are also LGBTQ plus. So our organization, Movie Karma, really looks at the full picture of not just who's in front of the camera, but also who's behind it. Uh, we know even on shows like Love Victor uh, and others, there's not much representation actually if you go up the chain in terms of folks who are openly LGBTQ plus who are you know exec producing show running uh, and and so forth um, so on the executive side, on the you know director producer side, um, we see a lot of opportunity for more representation and equity and inclusion, uh, and that for us starts at the very beginning. So it starts at high school, college levels, but also starts at folks who are not getting access into the industry when they're out of college or maybe they didn't go to a traditional film school, um, but really don't have the access, the relationships, the financial wherewithal to get to get in the door. I think a show like Pose um, is transformative in a lot of ways because we've seen behind the camera representation and also in front of the camera representation uh, and also some of the decision makers on the show are LGBTQ plus and often in some many cases of color, which I think is a, is a great step forward. But in our view, there's still a lot of work to do. And I think it's just important to think holistically about, again, in front of the camera, behind the camera, and even at the executive level, who is making the decisions, who's who's actually kind of doing, has that green light authority to, to make some changes. That's great. So Zachary, this is a perfect segue to you as somebody who's both in front of the camera and, and behind the camera. We just love your perspective in terms of the content that's getting produced today, but it'll also give us a perfect segue to talk more about representation in front of the camera and behind the camera. You know, whether it's, you know, gay playing gay or gay playing a non-gay character or, you know, non-trans actors playing trans. Uh, there's so much here. So I'd love to your perspective. Oh my God. Where do I start? I have so many <laughs> thoughts. I mean, there's, there's such incredible um, and brilliant ideas popping out. So, I mean, I think that we are truly in the age of Aquarius. The past few years, we've kind of landed squarely in this new era. We were in Capricorn before, which is very Earth-based. Now, this is the, the age of the internet, of cryptocurrency, of 
interconnectivity via um, Zoom. Um, it, I think, is uh, such an indicator of um, the way that the power of celebrity has been dispersed as well. I mean, if we're talking specifically about filmmaking um, and the show Prom came up, right? You have these shows that are just packing in stars that used to carry a multi-million dollar film and now they are an ensemble cast. Um, every generation has its own celebrities. Every microcosm of a generation has its own celebrities. Um, you know, the, the Warhol um, idiom of being famous for 15 minutes has is, is come to, you know, fruition. We're truly in this era where um, everybody is famous and, and who knows, uh, you know, who, <laughs> who they all are. You can't even keep track of it. Um, the more, I think, with content, the more specific you are, the more universal it is. And that's always been one of my motivating kinds of um, ideologies. I think that in decades past, content pandered to the status quo, you know, and so it was a very white middle class um, container for a story that was meant to be, you know, neutral because white is neutral and, you know, all of these kinds of um, institutionally, um, you know, structured ways of seeing the world. And in fact, you know, culture is a tool of uh, social change can be, it can be propaganda. It can be, you know, it's, it's highly um, influential. Um, culture is not neutral. So I think the, the more specific we are about the stories we tell, um, the more accessible they are to audiences. Um, and I think that's what the streaming era has revealed to us that it's often the hits that are highly specific about communities that have been underexposed. Um, I think that representation is the tip of the iceberg, literally. It is the thing that we see on screen, but there is a whole structure underneath it. And that structure should also reflect the stories that are being told in front of the camera and I think that's the biggest challenge in our industry is creating more pipelines for solid career um, trajectories uh, for, for young um, creatives and storytellers and Outfest I think does a, a wonderful job of supporting young filmmakers and visionaries and dreamers and it's just crucial that those pathways continue to exist um, because there is a diminishing uh, sphere for independent film or I mean all of the independent divisions of major studios are closing basically <laughs> and we have like two left um, and the streaming services are, are the giants left standing. I don't know. I mean, I'm throwing out a lot of different things, but I think that at this point we're navigating uh, we're navigating advanced capitalism in a way that's unprecedented. 
Um, we have never been here before, and this is truly, I think, the most democratic era of content creation. Um, yeah. You raise a really great point that we'll, we'll talk about in a bit, but this whole consolidation, whether it's of companies consolidating or streaming services, how will that potentially, I don't know, bury content in some way? If there's so much, you know, how do you find it? I mean, I know I have a hard time, you know, when I'm looking for things, it's, you know, it's hard to find it. Uh, it's hard to find. So, um, can I jump in and goals? react to something you asked that was in your yeah, question? Please. Um, uh, it, to, to me, I think we're in an interesting, challenging time regarding casting and diversity and what actor is right for a role as a coming from, you know, Bruce brought this up earlier. I mean, having made when I made Trick, my first film back in 98, you could count on one hand how many actors were out and willing to play a gay role in a gay film. And one was Nathan Lane, I think, and he wasn't right for the Go-Go Boys, so we didn't cast him. So, I mean, so our, our, you know, so basically, you know, we did the thing where you do, where you, 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 you bring people in who are willing to play a gay role. And the list was very short. And I got lucky and found two straight boys who were great. I didn't know they were straight. You don't ask them that at the audition. In fact, I thought one of them might be gay, but he wasn't. My point is, it's an interesting time now because, and Jared may have touched on this a bit, is how do we get, the, you know, a diversity, how do we get diverse actors into a place where they have enough talent and experience to be able to be cast? Because you get to a point where do I cast an actor because they're, uh, you know, uh, of color or do I cast the actor who may or may not be better than this person? And where's the line between, where's that line? But I think it starts earlier than the casting room. I think it, how do we get, how do we get, how do we help actors get access and anyone, even behind the camera also, how, how do they get the access to get the experience to be worthy of the roles they're getting so they can be hired? And I don't have the answer. I'm just saying it's an, it's an interesting challenge right now, mm -hmm. specifically about casting and any, any role in a film or TV show. Well, and I also, I'll just add, cause I think it's also, um, it's a, representation being the tip of the iceberg, as Zachary said, and it's also a pipeline issue, as Damien mentioned. And what's happening right now, which is super exciting, but super chaotic, is that as more and more projects are being, are being made, largely because of the streamers and how niche everything is, as Zachary said, as more and more projects are being made that are are both featuring on-camera underrepresented voices um, in the Black community, Latinx, LGBT, trans, and then therefore what you need is behind-the-camera talent creating all of those. The employment possibilities for those groups is growing, and it's actually kind of growing exponentially. And it's act to the point where there are actually at times now, there are more projects that need members of those communities to step into roles than there are actually are people to fulfill them. There may be times where every trans producer is currently working and every trans director is currently working right now and they're more needed. So, uh, you know, to me, that's hugely exciting news. And just talking to the youth out there, 
um, if people are watching, you know, if you're from an underrepresented community, if you're in junior high school or high school, and if you're trans or LGBT or black or Latinx, it's kind of like the tech industry from 20 years ago. Yeah. If you're looking for a career where you are needed desperately, it's in the entertainment industry. So please come. We need you and we need your voices and we need you to be a part of this next golden age if we're really going to create it. Thank you, Bruce. The check will be in the mail. That's a perfect statement that I wanted to make sure we brought up because not only are we going through a production explosion and we're talking about inclusion here, there's so much opportunity because there's so much need. There's just not enough people uh, to service um, the amount of content that's being produced. So thank you for bringing that up. I really appreciate it. And then, so Jared, let's jump back to you. I want to hear more about your organization since, you know, it, the whole purpose of the organization is sort of um, helping with inclusion and representation. Yeah, so really building on what Bruce just said, I mean, we at Movie Karma were a nonprofit formed about a year ago. I spent most of my life in diversity, equity, inclusion across multiple sectors and causes, um, you know, on political campaigns and elsewhere. And what I've, what I've seen is, and what a recent report from McKinsey showed, um, the research firm was that Hollywood itself is the least diverse major industry um, uh, in the United States. I mean, just to, just, to, just to put that out there, like our work to Bruce's point is, is cut out for us. There's a lot of need across the board. So we see a number of challenges um, and we're addressing uh, now through our, what we're calling our inclusive pathways program. And that starts with what all of you have been talking about. It starts with that pipeline. It starts with that kid who, you know, maybe is LGBT plus, but doesn't know where to start. Doesn't know that there are, you know, for example, music su supervisor positions or first AD roles or other positions in the industry uh, because of all the barriers that we know, both financial access, relationship-based. So um, our program, because Pathways is really designed to create those opportunities, really uh, building on what Ryan Murphy's done with, with, with his productions, where there's a shadow on every single production, all 70 plus episodes of TV that his team creates from Pose to all the other shows has a shadow, has a paid um, you know, person who is shadowing that director um, who often is underrepresented or, or LGBTQ plus uh, and has an opportunity to then lead into director roles. And we've actually met some of those folks who've had their lives transformed because of getting that credit. So it's really about for us opening those doors, breaking down those you know, barriers to entry that have existed for so long for folks who didn't grow up in the industry, aren't in LA or New York, uh, et cetera, and so forth. Um, so providing those paid hands-on living wage opportunities for folks is a key focus of the program, both uh, behind the camera, above the line, but also the executive level, as many of you mentioned. We've been fortunate to get the support of Lionsgate and Warner Media and met with you know, Netflix, Sony, Paramount, many others, and there's recurring themes across the board on the executive side uh, that I'm sure many of you in this conversation are aware of, which includes just not having folks who look like you, who are in your community, above you, below you, beside you. And so the re retention rate is therefore impacted. So for us, it's kind of, again, a holistic look at addressing a lot of the challenges we've seen in the McKinsey report. And the last thing I'll mention is that data and transparency piece, which I think is a key, key part. If we don't know the problem, if we can't get a grasp on the numbers and there's not data sharing and transparency and accountability across the studios, across the production companies and networks, and we don't really, we can't really understand the problem. And so we can't solve it in the, in the sort of targeted way. So that's a key part of uh, what we're trying to do as well. Thanks, Jared. Can I, can I add to it? Not only, I, and I agree completely with what everybody said on here too, but I think one of our, and it's a holy grail kind of moment, but it is when any underrepresented uh, group, that filmmaker, whatever that, you know, 
we don't necessarily only want a trans director or creator showrunner to to do a trans story. Like the idea is that, you know, you're a director, you're a showrunner, you're a writer, and you're not just, you know, that specific. And so I think even with the proliferation of content that is for um, underrepresented communities, and that's wonderful, and that's absolutely a great way to expand the pipeline and the opportunities. But I think obviously where we want to get to is that anybody can tell any story, just like for so very long, straight white men have told every story. And so, you know, everybody has a point of view, obviously, for where they come from. That doesn't mean that's the only story that you can tell. And I look forward to that as well, where we go in the future. Appreciate that. Samantha, Damien, is anything you want to add to the, the talking point about inclusion and representation before we move on to the next topic? Um, I just to sort of reiterate what I said earlier, it's so much better than it was, but uh, we are not at there yet. Um, and so I think that um, we all have to keep fighting and keep pushing. And, you know, part of uh, what happens in the exact world are those lists you know, of the open, of who's available for writing, who's available for directing. And, you know, and even just getting creative about how you put like shows together, um, because, you know, running a show is a, is a, is a big, complicated, expensive endeavor. Um, and the amount of people who are experienced at it, you know, they're all working and there's not a lot of them and you have to get that experience. So, when you take a chance with a young writer, how do you partner them up with someone who's going to mentor them and who is going to, um, you know, help them through that process? And looking at those, just those lists, don't just limit it to the most experienced, like really look for the voices and the people who can tell whatever story you're trying to tell authentically and originally. And there are just, as a producer, there's just ways to put things together where you can also um, help uh, less experienced voices, not even younger. Sometimes they're older people. Um, like, you know, uh, they're young in their career, like find their way up the ladder. Um, and to me, that's, I'm super excited to be kind of at this place in my career where I can do that. I can really start like trying to, to make that help make that change and help, you know, surf this wave. So Damien, I want to jump to you because I think we touched on this, but I want to do a deeper dive and that's distribution. In this whole landscape, whether it's film festivals, theatrical distribution, streaming platforms, I know Alfest is the festival, but there's more than that there. So I really would love to give your your uh, your thought. Tell us more about Alfest and Alfest now, and your thoughts about overall distribution and, and the streaming platforms in general. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, and I'm actually as one of the only POC people on the panel. Going to finish a little bit, I think, of the last segment too, if you're if you're okay with that. You know, because sure. obviously growing up as a as a as a East LA, you know, Latino, very much an understanding like that cash and transportation. Uh, like when we talk about pipeline and where we begin at the elementary school level, economic disparity is absolutely fundamentally what begins at like day one of birth and where you're born into and what family you're born into regardless of like all these other things. So I, I mean, I love that everybody's kind of focusing. It's very up pipeline, like I'm doing this and, you know, we're getting better, but really the fundamentally is like fundamentals. We had, you know, ben, Bianca Quesada who was at Live Nation and now is, is working um, with Moses Zamora and starting up a new startup. Like one of the, when I recruited her to the board, you know, one of the things we talked about is like, what's so disturbing is that 10 miles away in the San Gabriel Valley, have, the, there are kids that are queer 
that have never heard of anything like Alphys or a program or even thought about, you know, a, a creative and storytelling. Like these are school at the school, the elementary school level is where this begins. And what I always find humorous in some ways is that, you know, this new program, this new diversity program, this new inclusion program is, is we're, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. But at the end of the day, eight people show up. You know, and and the whole point is that I've also discovered through a recent hire, our new artistic director, Frida Gatamosi, who was very much clear that it's up to us to go into this community. So, Jim, like your, your point earlier, you know, if I'm not finding these people coming into my casting office, if they're not coming to me, well, then we got to do the real work and we have to go into these communities. I mean, what was always so fascinating, you know, like American Idol is going into those communities and saying, hey, we are here, come to us. And that and we've had it very easy for for hundred over a hundred plus years in entertainment of expecting people to get on that train. We've seen all the visions in the films. Like I've got my knapsack on and I'm going to make it in Hollywood. But that is that that already takes certain certain amount of privilege because that means they have a home to come back to. They have a financial ba- you know basket many times for them to be able to take that type of risk. That is not the norm, especially for our communities of color. And so that's something that we need to fundamentally understand that this is this goes so early on. And unless we're really addressing that systemic issue, we're not gonna see real change. We're not gonna see these volumes change. You know, We're doing things like the Transacting Fellowship to address the fact that there's not enough trans actors or non-binary characters to play those characters. But that scale is so tiny, I'm embarrassed at on the alpha support. The, the, the minutia ways in which we can affect change are so small that it really is a fundamental change where we, we have to look at the whole political, you know, the political understanding of how we're ultimately putting cash into these families, into these arts programs, into these grassroots ways. And then we're going out to them and saying, hey, I'm glad you got trained. We're here to cast you. We're here to to, to mentor you. But that's not going to happen as long as we stay in these bubbles of our cities and these metropolitan areas. Now, bringing that full circle back to distribution, for those that do make it through the very hardships and the challenges and times um, of getting to a place in which they are even up for distribution, they have products for distribution, that fundamentally also opens up an amazing opportunity when it comes to streaming, as we've seen. And, you know, looking at what we just started to dabble in with the launch of Alphas Now, which, by the way, was not in our strategic plan. It wasn't planned for. It wasn't, you know, we weren't looking at ways to use leverage. We were very much locked into our own mindset of geographic, you know, um, reach that we saw huge, huge opportunities and outcomes, both from the fan and audience side, where we saw real rural communities. We made accessibility 100% free for anybody that was you know, we're able to fill out a very simple form um, for financial hardship. And the stories that we immediately saw harken back to a lot of what we were describing at the very beginning of this panel, these first times that we saw ourselves represented. There are incredible rural individuals in, in, that, that have zero accessibility that aren't finding any of this because there's not a film festival that comes through town. So this idea of taking Alphys on the road became even more prevalent when we were able to launch the streaming place and to look at some of the impact that we're already providing where we are putting on that platform projects that are ready for distribution by the streamers. Like we are the complement. When we talk about, um, you know, where do we put our cash, these development groups that have the diversity, equity and inclusion groups, they're still trying to use their fundamental same processes to find new content. And what we're asking for is give it to us. We actually know because we've seen them, these stories painstakingly through the film, you know, the film festival process or because of our own grassroots reaches, where those individuals are that are ready for their first big break, that are ready for their first feature to, 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 to be on their, to be staffed on their first right in their first writing rooms. So what we're starting to see is that change that we're building different types of relationships with development um, development uh, departments, 
um, with other streaming platforms, with the film and industry that is coming in finally and saying, oh, let us expand your screenwriting lab program. Let us expand these programs that you have now been doing for 15, 20 years to finally put some real support behind them. And distribution is absolutely where we can start making real impact quickly. And Damon, I want to give you a chance also to highlight um, another sort of program with Alphabet, which is Legacy, which is how um, we are restoring uh, content that may disappear. So just let me make sure the audience is aware of that, because that's, uh, again, a phenomenal thing that Alphabet has been doing for 20 years. How long is Legacy? Yeah, the Legacy project's been around for, I think, nearly 20 years. Um, and, and that was something that, you know, when we talk about it, Alphabet, one of our, our objectives is to support a creator through their entire their entire life cycle, including postmortem, you know, like when when those works are 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 in desperate need of being preserved. As we all know, things, especially in our early years, we're all are all on celluloid. Those are all slowly um, breaking down, and so we partnered with the UCLA Archive um, a while ago to start restoring those films, archiving, digitizing them. And what's so sad about this moment is we haven't done a great, and I really appreciate you you calling that out because we haven't done the best job of really talking about the importance of preservation, even before restoration, you know, of digitalization. All these films, they may be protected in these air-conditioned coolers that are arc out in, out in um, the Silicon Valley, uh, but they aren't being digitized, you know, so there's a really scary moment that I know big companies like Google and Indie Collect are getting together to try and, you know, start a process in which we can start to digitize this. But um, we're, we're doing what part we can. We've restored over 26 feature films, um, archived over 40,000 films. But again, if we looked at how many of those have been digitized or are available for distribution, that's where the real support and work needs to become. So before, believe it or not, we're almost done. Can I, can, can I just add in one little bit Please. about that? Because I happened to be on the Outfest board when uh, the Legacy Project uh, was launched. And uh, I just wanted to add one little bit because it sort of ties up here is that the film that sort of inspired that uh, was the executive director, Stephen Gutwillig, realized that they had a screening of Parting Glances at the festival. Mm -hmm. And uh, the print looked like crap. It was terrible. And they found out that, of course, the filmmaker had passed on and that the um, original, uh, the originals, the, the negatives went out, the film were sitting in someone's garage, um, not preserved, not being taken care of. And the only thing that existed were these few, like, really old damaged prints. Um, and that's what sort of started it, because this was a film that was in, you know, our recent history. Um, and was such a life changing um, film for so many people that it was like, well, if 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 Outfest doesn't do it, if someone doesn't take you know action on this, our our history is literally going to disintegrate. Our film history like it's just going to go away. So I just wanted to throw it back to parting glances, and that that was what kicked off Legacy Project, and and what a tremendous success Legacy is. I mean, UCLA has a whole sort of class that studies this uh, archive and the elements that are in there, and it's not just films and TV, but it's also you know people's home movies. Um, right. which is so much of our history is documented that way too. Um, so anyway, that's... No, no, thank you for that, Samantha. So before we go to sort of talking points and uh, Q&A, I just wanted to see if anyone else has any comments about distribution, especially our producers who are sort of pitching content or producing content. Uh, going back to what Zachary said, as we as the industry consolidates, you, you'll go to uh, NBC, but NBC is not just a television network, it's a streaming network, which is attached to a the theatrical company. So... 
I'm just curious as we're preparing or getting ready to produce content, how things get distributed affect that. So Samantha, you're on top of my screen. So I'll, I'll let, see if you have any thoughts about that. Um, you know, I, a year ago, I launched my own company after having um, uh, worked with Philly Crystal for the bulk of my career. Um, and it was last year was super exciting. People were buying. Um, there was a real desire to just tell different stories, you know, just stories that didn't look like all the other stories. And, and I think also because everyone was just kind of sitting around on a zoom and had tons of nervous energy and, you know, it's like, we can't make things. So let's just develop things and buy things. But, you know, I was on a, um, I was on a call with an exec, um, I won't name the streamer, but at at the streamer and, and, um, I have this like little Latinx rom-com that I'm, uh, I'm out trying to put together that I feel fits at a streamer. Um, but we were, we were chatting about what they're looking for. And, you know, now it's $40 million romantic comedies or, or movies and everything is like, it has to fit an international audience and this whole thing. And it was a little heartbreaking to me because he was just telling me their mandate, right? Like this is their, every company has their mandate and the sort of, and the mandates change all the time. But for me in that short period of time from we're looking for, you know, it has to be packaged, but we're totally into first time directors. We want to do this, you know, that I'm thinking to myself, well, you're not going to give a first time director a $40 million budget. Like it's not going to happen. So all of a sudden that door just to me in that moment that felt a little open, it seemed like it was closing. And so it was a little bit of a alarm bell to me because, you know, the indie cinema pipeline is sort of dead at the moment. Like I hope it comes back, but I just had a movie that came and went in the theaters. It's a terrific film. Nobody went to the movies. Nobody's going to the movies. So, you know, it's, it's this moment where we really have to, as, as creators, all of us, not just us sitting here on the screen, but like everyone out there who's great, we have to keep fighting. We have to keep charging. We just have to keep, you know, um, and it's, it's the business. It's the way it's always been. But um, I just feel like we have to keep kicking that door open um, and just look for ways to, um, to just keep telling great stories. Can I just add on what, what Samantha just said in terms of it being a business? And I think it is an it is a it is a reality, somewhat of an unfortunate reality for everybody. I think who steps foot into the entertainment business, which is uh, the film business or entertainment business. Both words are extremely important: film and entertainment. So the creative side, but the business side. And I think in the past, you know, when before streamers, it was very tough because theatrical was the holy grail, still is the holy grail, and it's extremely expensive. And so it was extremely limiting with the stories you could tell, which is why. You know, we got so many large four quadrant stories that weren't super crazy interesting um, for, you know, a lot of people. You couldn't tell as many niche stories. But now um, and then I think in the streamers, it, it when they first came, it was like we can tell every story We're, because it's an SVOD. It's a subscription model, you know, monthly subscription model. You're not as dependent on that one ticket buyer to buy your film, to see your film. They're buying the whole monthly subscription. So if you can just get on it, then you have an opportunity. And so I think it broadened the world. But I do think that because theatrical is uh, reducing that now the streamers are kind of becoming that replacement. So the business side of streamers is affecting things again, you know, and it's just changing the world. And I think that, you know, it's like it is we all have to navigate through the world of the business of it um, that has an economic bottom line that, you know, 
unfortunately or fortunately, I think largely unfortunately, changes stories at times and changes the stories that can be told. But like Samantha says, you just got to keep going, keep putting these stories out there and showing why they're interesting and why they actually, and going on to what Zachary was saying earlier, sometimes the more niche you get, the better it will be. And I think they're finding that, you know, so we just got to keep going with that. Yeah, Laura, that's a great point. I want to get Bruce's perspective and distribution, but even this week you had sort of the, the big announcement of, uh, of Netflix and Amblin. And if you read all the different articles, it was actually Steven Spielberg that was initially not in favor of it because again, not necessarily his words, but yours is that, you know, theatrical is the Holy grail and he wasn't ready to sort of let that go. But obviously he's at a point now where, uh, there are so many options available to streaming that it, it still makes sense because he still has theatrical as an option. But Bruce, I, I would love your, your your thoughts about how the distribution is, is sort of changing and continues. Well, to- yeah, I'll pick up exactly on where Samantha and then Laura, and which is that um, Hollywood is a business and Hollywood, it, it's hilariously so at times. And what happened, what's happened since COVID and since George Floyd on the television and streaming side is that the business has shifted to the point where if you come in and pitch a story about white straight men, they literally look at you like you've lost your mind. They're, they're like, what are you even doing here? Like to the point of confusion. And it would be lovely if they were coming at it from a place of diversity and inclusion and humanity and all the right reasons. They're, they're just purely from the business model of the mandate is to find all of these underrepresented voices and get all these stories told that haven't been told. And they're in this panic, a good panic that the audience doesn't want to see the same old stories they've been only were able to see, but they want to see all these other stories. So as far as far as theatrical um, and as far as, you know, the window closing, I would propose, you know, part of our job as activist artists is we're in a race. And can we get, you know, in this moment on the television and streamer side where they are hiring first timers and they are looking for all these underrepresented voices and they do want to get all these projects made. Can we get enough new talent doing amazing work and enough stuff made quick enough so that by the time the theatrical is only doing $40 million movies. We actually have those directors and we have those writers and we have those producers who make those movies. And we have the evidence that all of these stories actually do make money at the box office, which is only going to happen if great stories get told. You know, it's the audiences are now being groomed and treated to all of these phenomenal stories on the streamers in the hopes that they will go to see that movie on the screen. And this myth that black films don't travel internationally or that the LGBT audience isn't big enough to support a big budget. We've got to break those myths down and prove hopefully that they're wrong. Expert. So I guess, believe it or not, we're almost out of time, but I want to make sure we leave time for Q&A. But I just want to go back to every one of you and give you all a chance to talk about um, project, whether past, current or pending, because a lot of the questions that are coming in are from folks who sort of, how do I get to where you all are? And how do I sort of, and again, it goes back to what Bruce said, there's there's never been more opportunity to do that, but there's, there's a lot of questions of how. So I'm going to go back and start with Jim and, and, and Trick and his um, attempts to make Trick 2 and what, you know, I always find it kind of funny that uh, the movie that followed Trick was the Lizzie McGuire movie. So, so Jim, maybe just talk a bit about your projects and sort of, you know, 
how you started and where you are today. Listen, I mean, I just started wanting to make uh, a gay movie and then I found Trick. And to be honest, I don't think I've ever, I, I've made six features and each one, the last one was kind of a nightmare, but each one, <laughs> each one was a movie I wanted to see and had my sensibility. So, you know, it's the old thing. It's like, you know, find a project that's authentic to you and make it, you know, try to get it made and write that script. Like just now more than ever, you can get a, you can get a, you know, a movie or a show made or at least something online that represents you and you can do it beautifully with the technology. Now, you know, you couldn't have done it back in my day, like what, 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 what the kids today can do. So, uh, you know, it's just, just get that thing made. And to be honest, it's also, learn how to write a script. I think, I think, I think writing is the hardest and the least maybe paid attention to paid attention to thing. Uh, you know, learn how to write that script, do the homework. And I, 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 it's rare that a good, good, good story doesn't get made. It's, it's very easy to say no, but if your script is tight and really good, it may take a while. It took me four years to get trick made. I didn't write it, but, uh, and trick two is going into, I think five years of trying to get that made. So, uh, but the script is tight and it'll find its way. So make what you love and the, that authenticity will come through. That's how you get your break. And that's how Lizzie happened. I basically was the most enthusiastic person who met on that movie. And there was a gay executive who hired me because they liked my movie trick that was authentic to me. So that's my advice. Zachary, what about I mean, with uh, Transparent and Lady, The Lady in the Dale? Maybe would love your, you know, talk about any projects that sort of either you've worked on or that you're working on that can basically um, help those that are listening sort of find their way. You know, I think that, um you know, telling your stories by any means necessary, not waiting for gatekeepers to give you access to telling that story. Um, I think, you know, being scrappy and resourceful <laughs> and using all of the tools at your disposal. Um, I do feel like, you know, 2020 was a real inflection point and that folks in the industry are putting their money where their mouth is. Um, I think, you know, I'm so impressed with everybody in this particular conversation um, because I feel like you all are doing the work to create opportunities for underrepresented voices um, in, in your many different capacities. And yeah, I think that there is room for everybody. I mean, I think the other piece of it is that in order to live in a more equitable world, um, you know, we have to be willing to make sacrifices and to give up some of our privilege. Bruce, what about you in terms of projects either you've worked on or are working on in terms of access to content? Um, anything, you know, we talked about writing, uh, again, just access to content. Anything you want to share? Um, well, I'll just share the project that I'm currently working on, which I'm super excited about, is um, the Bayard Rustin movie at Netflix. Um, I've been 
one of the people trying to get that particular movie, people tried different projects over the years, but this particular version of it going for a couple of years. And I can tell you anecdotally that statistically, no one knows who Byron Rustin is. LGBT people don't know who Byron Rustin is. Black people don't know who Byron Rustin is. No one knows who Byron Rustin is. And it, it actually harkened me back to Outfest because there was a, um, there was a documentary in uh, back when I was on the board in like the 90s. And I remember there was a period in the 90s where the LGBT community knew who Byron Rustin was. He was on the radar of the community and he has fallen off. Kids today, LGBTQ kids today haven't heard of him. So um, it's super exciting to have finally have a chance to get that story told. I mean, we learn from movies like Milk and there's, you know, tons of other examples that 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 the, the right narrative film can really become the way that generations know about a story. I mean, we all, you know, we wish we lived in a world where people did read newspapers and read books and watch documentaries, but they just don't impermeate culture the way a feature film being the Holy Grail can. And so um, to get Rustin made at Netflix with George C. Wolf directing and I'm producing with Higher Ground, which is the, is the Obama's company. I mean, to have the Obama's being a part of this moment where Bayard Rustin is going to be presented to the world, hopefully in a way that his legacy is going to live on, um, you know, just gives me chills just thinking about it. And Samantha, I know that you mentioned already you started your own production company. And prior to that, you were co-producing for many years with, with Billy Crystal. Anything, whether past or current, that you want to highlight? Um, well, first of all, everything that everyone has said here is so right on the money. Um, the technology is there. Just do it. Just find a way within your means to just do it. Just create. That's so important. And there's so many avenues to get work out there and, and be seen. Network up as much as you can. Look for partners who can help you to, to tell your story or make you a better filmmaker. Um, and then I'm out right now trying to put together um, a little three-character lesbian romantic drama that uh, is with a first-time director. She wrote it for herself to make for $250,000. Um, and I'm like, you know what? Why don't we just aim a little higher? Um, but I'm, you know, sort of out using all my relationships and skills to try to put this wonderful little movie together. And um, I have to say it's, a, it's exciting and it's a little frustrating because I do find myself kind of hitting all of the same... Uh, walls that have been there for so long. Um, and I just, you know, I'm just going to keep trying. I'll find the right open door. Um, I am very optimistic about it. But so it, it are these moments for me that are reality checks of where I go, oh, it's changed. <laughs> it's still it's still the business. It's still the same Hollywood that I've grown up in. And I know, but um, Bruce, I also really appreciate how you use your muscle to tell our stories um, on a big stage and to tell them so well. Um, I hope you end up winning an Oscar for this one too. Thank you. So, hey, Damien, I know you need to drop off soon. I just wanted to give you a chance before I go back to Laura. Anything you wanted to sort of say before we, because we're going to go to Laura and then a Q&A and hard to believe that it's been 90 minutes. Sorry about that, guys and gals, <laughs> everyone. 
No, I mean, I think this is just evidence that, you know, this is where we need our, our big seminars to come back. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things we've been holding on to, and especially when you get a group like this together that's uh, incredibly dynamic and also familiar with one another, of just really understanding the kind of work that we're doing and why it's so important. Um, no, I just encourage everybody, for those of you that are attending that haven't heard of Outfest before, we are much more than a festival, as I like to express. Um, and we are doing, you know, we are continuing to expand our programs. We've been, uh, you know, we, we've survived COVID. We've kind of thrived during COVID and have some incredible programs that we're continuing to expand and outreach. Uh, save the date for Outfest Los Angeles 2021, which of course is August 13th through the August 22nd with our Friday uh, opening night. So for those of you that I haven't seen in a while, I hope I can see your faces there. But thanking you for letting me plug Outfest and um, just wanted to say how much I appreciate uh, for you putting this group together. I think it's really important and I'm excited for more and more people to kind of check in and, and see what we've all been up to. Thank you, David. So Laura, I just want to jump back to you really quickly and just give you a chance to sort of comment about projects you've worked on, including the, the musical that you're, you're a part of producing. Just again, a lot of the questions you're getting is sort of how do I get where everyone on the screen is today? So anything you want to share? I think I would, again, echo what everybody's saying, but it's about material. It's about good material. So if you have a story to tell, work on your story, tell your story. Um, you know, I'm constantly reminded of even back in Linda Oakes's day, when she first broke into the business, it was because she had a project called Adventures in Babysitting that was hers, that she nurtured, and that got her in the door and got her started in the business. And when you have a project, it's yours to drive and yours to navigate. And that's frustrating, exactly like Samantha said and Bruce has said and Jim and everybody has said, but it's also, it means you're the captain of it. And in today's world, exactly like Jim said, you can make it, you can make it on your iPhone and you can edit it and you can put it on the internet and people find it. And that is so different from what it used to be and so liberating to a certain degree. And people in our place, we're always looking for new voices, new talent, new stories. Um, and so I think the more you get out there and you work on that stuff, the better it's going to be. And then like Samantha said, network, you know, I read Linda Ope's book and was inspired and i called her office like incessantly until she let me work for her for free um, on a movie. And I was like, great, this is what I'm going to do. Like, you know, you just, you pound the pavement, you kind of make things happen to the extent you can. And I, again, I think part of that is go grab six friends and go shoot something that's five minutes long that tells a story that you want to tell and put it together and put it on YouTube um, and it will be found. Well, thanks. So I'm going to go back to Natalie. I know we have, what, three minutes, Natalie. I don't know if you have any questions that you want to sort of throw out really quickly. We did get quite a few questions, um, and I know that we are very, very over time. So I'm going to start. Um, I'm just actually going to pose this one question to the group because we got a very lovely comment um, from someone that mentioned the fact that when the movie Philadelphia first came out, it made them realize the struggle of uh, someone they actually knew in their lives. Um, but through a perspective, you know, they they were actually able to identify with what they were going through. And I know that we've touched on how, um, you know, we need to have representation of everyday people. It doesn't have to be a specific issue. Um, but are there any issues that that we really still need to tap into that have not been represented that you would like to see or that you would maybe um, want to approach in your work going forward? If anyone wants to take the lead, I, I don't have a... I, yeah, I'll go Bruce. That's well, my... I was just going to say, I think that's one of the truly moving and beautiful and exciting parts of our community is that we're an ever-growing, ever-evolving 
family. I mean, you know, Joe made the joke about there being so many letters, but of course, we all understand the true importance and power of that. And whether we keep adding the letters to the name or not, and the pluses there, the fact that new letters keep being invented and, and evolved is what one of the things that makes it so special and magical. And so, um, you know, the first thing that came to my mind was non-binary because that's kind of our newest concept. It's not necessarily linked. It isn't linked to sexual identity. It's linked to gendered identity and self-perception. We wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have known a year ago that non-binary characters, that is a new frontier that I'm, you know, so excited to explore. I think most many people, not over jealous, many people over the age of 25 or 30 don't really know what it means or understand it. But if you're in junior high school or high school, you do know what it means. And it ha- and 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 we haven't been able to tell those stories yet. I think a couple of years ago, we I know a couple of years ago, we wouldn't have we didn't understand the the depth and severity to which trans stories had not been told and represented on the screen. And then there was this, again, happy gold rush to tell those stories. We don't even know what's coming next, but I know that in two years, there'll be some other new story that we want to tell. And and again, I think that's what is so powerful and transformative about our community. If I may add, I think, I think, uh, I think uh, there's ageism. I think stories about older older people, older LGBT, older people at all, anybody old. <laughs> and I consider myself old now. So anybody above, you know, 45, where, where, where are those stories? Where are those? Those are very specific, especially with the gay community, especially with the trans community, with any community. Uh, I think that's an underserved, um, I'd love to see more of those stories. Yeah, and I would add that I think nobody ever questions, are you gonna run out of, run out of white people stories or straight person's like? There's so there's an infinite amount of stories to be told uh, in in our community and, and you know I think just what Bruce is saying about fired wrestling I mean it's like they're they're there we still have a lot to do and a lot to tell yeah and I just quickly say I think I think it goes to that as everyone said the diversity of stories um, but also just the I, one of the things we hear in our organization and through our podcast rewriting Hollywood is folks who like the stories is often defined by just their identity so it's just about them being trans or just about them being gay. I think we're not, I think we still have a lot of work to do to show full body characters that fully exist within the world and not just defined by what their identity is. Um, that's the ongoing struggle for any creative to tell full-bodied characters. It's such a great challenge for all of us. But um, I will just say my own personal thing. Uh, I um, I think the way in which the younger generation is kind of schooling the older generation, like uh, just with my pronouns, um, I didn't really, as you know, as a as a as a as a woman, as a cisgender woman, I was. Uh, I didn't really understand the value of my pronouns because I was, you know, I just, I'm like, of course I'm she, hers. And then my kids totally schooled me and gave me the breakdown of like why I needed to do it. And the fact that like, and that's not something, you know, that's just, that's, that's like, that's generational. That's their thing. And I feel like there's just even in that little way, like, and Bruce, what you're saying about non-binary, like there is, there's just so much that we all, uh, so many characters to mind, so many stories to tell that, you know, are just funny to me also, like my kids schooling me and like, uh, and I'm like, oh, you're totally right. Um, but uh, anyway, so I, uh, I think it's a, there's a deep, deep well of, um, 
of stories to tell. A special thank you to our panel for sharing their experiences and their insights with our audience. It was inspiring and insightful to be with them. If you enjoyed today's discussion and you'd like to keep the conversation going, we encourage you to head over to theproductioncommunity.com where you can post questions for our experts on the community forum and connect with thousands of other entertainment industry professionals. You can also find our entire library of Master Series episodes, product news and support, as well as our resume portal. To stay connected with the entire EP team, follow us on social media or head over to ep.com. We look forward to seeing you at the next Master Series.